right. Welcome to the Miss Art World podcast. I'm your host, Catherine, with my co-host, Samuel. What up, Art World? And today I'm really excited because um, I have known Ashley Patton um, since, I don't know, it's been like 10 years. Um, Just so our listeners know, Ashley and I worked together for a nonprofit art gallery way back when, but she's gone on to do some really cool things. So currently she's getting her PhD or she's a PhD candidate uh, for the Department of Art History at the University of Minnesota and holds a minor in early modern studies. She has her MA uh, with art history from the University of California, Riverside and a BA in art history from the California or from the University of California Santa Barbara. Her research includes early modern Italian sculpture, gender, religion, and materiality. Um and I can we can go on and on. She worked Does that just include everything? Because you're like religion, gender, (laughs) like what's not that list? Yeah, I like to do it all, you know. (laughs) Well, first, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Uh, It's really good to be here. And you should thank uh, us at the end. (laughs) I'll thank you. You you might not. You might not have the same opinion (laughs) at the end. You're like, oh man, I'm never coming back. Be like, they're really dumb. So it sounds like I do a little bit of everything um, just because I'm interested in a lot of different things with my research. Uh, But yes, I focus on a specific time period. So my really narrow focus, I guess, would be from around 1600 to 1670 in Rome, so broadly the 17th century. Um, But I've taught sort of in a bigger than that. Um, so I've taught at the university level, and then I also teach a high school class in the summer, which I could talk a little bit more about that if you want to talk more about art education um, or art historical education, I suppose. But yeah, I uh, focus on sculptures of holy women in my research. Um, it's what I've been working on my doctorate for the last almost six years now, and I'm sort of rolling up towards the end, I hope really hope, knock on wood, of my dissertation. Um, But I look at different sculptures of women in churches, and I'm really interested in how these sculptures are shaping and informing what people thought of women in this time period. So specifically, how religion factors into all of that, because you have these women who um, are celebrated for their holiness, Um, And then wrapped up in that is their uh, transgression or their transgressive natures. Um, So they're doing things that society says they shouldn't do or that the church says they shouldn't do. um, And then they do them anyway. And then hundreds of years later, they're being celebrated for it. And so I'm interested in sort of that tension of how are women who exist, you know, who are living in the 17th century, they're living in circumstances, you know, very different and what we're living in today, um, they don't have as many personal freedoms or religious freedoms, and yet they're looking up to these sculptures of women who had all these freedoms that they didn't have, or they're being presented that way, perhaps. So I'm interested in these questions of gender, of gender roles, um, and then how this sort of tangibility of sculpture fits into all of that. Uh, mm-hmm. So I look at a number of different case <clears throat> studies, and um, I'm really lucky in that I've gone to Rome a lot so I've been able to study these works in person which has been really special um and it's just really a beautiful thing to do so um what like the first uh, let me get my <laughs> thoughts together the very first thing that I thought was like you know if you go into church you see the mother Mary um but is it also like Joan of Arc or who are some of the women's uh sculptures that you've gone to go see? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. So I have a number, like I think six case studies in my dissertation. Um, I'm trying to think of what one of my favorite ones are. So the one of my case studies, it's on a saint called um, Saint Cecilia, and she was a Roman martyr, so a person who died for her faith um, and early Christianity in Rome. So like I think 
late third century um, is when it's estimated that she lived. And she was uh, martyred around the age of 12 or 13 years old. So very, very young. But at this time period, you were old enough to be a bride at 12 or 13. So she was supposed to um, marry someone and she didn't want to. And she was forced to do it anyway. And she married him and she said, all right, I'll marry you, but I am not going to have sex with you because I love Jesus. And he, she manages to convert him through this process of sort of explaining to him her Christianity. And so he converts him, he converts his brother. Um, he just starts kind of converting everybody. <laughs> She's apparently this very sort of um, charismatic person. Mm-hmm. And you know, women are not supposed to necessarily be speaking publicly in this way. And certainly in the time period I study, women are not allowed to preach publicly at all. So this is something she's really valued for in her history. But in the early modern understandings of her, you would not want that to be brought to the forefront. Um, but she's doing this. She's she's converting all these people to Christianity and the Roman um, leaders, the prefect. He discovers what she's doing and he um, basically puts her under house arrest. He kills her husband, kills her brother-in-law and then gives her the opportunity. Yeah, it's pretty awful. You get a lot of saints, a lot of martyr saints out of this story. Um, So he pulls her into his office basically and says, you know, if you convert, I will let you go. You know, you won't have to, I won't have to kill you. Um, You can just go and be a nice Roman pagan noble woman and live out the rest of your life and she basically insults him in a number of different ways she insults his intelligence she makes fun of the way he looks like she's just also apparently very witty and pithy um Mm -hmm. for a 13 year old so uh he says okay well if you're not going to rescind your christianity and you're going to insult me not only am i going to kill you but i'm going to do it in a particularly gruesome way so he decides he's going to boil her in a bath and she's going to die right by being boiled in a bath but of course she is a miraculous saint so she survives she sits and literally sits in the bath with just like her arms crossed it's just like what else you got um so she's completely unharmed she's there's no burn marks, nothing. So she sits in this bath for three days, three nights, isn't burned. So she, they pull her out of the bath and the prefect says, okay, well now I really have to kill you and I really have to make sure that the job is done. So I'm going to chop your head off. And unfortunately, getting, you know, saving yourself from beheading is not something that even a martyr can do. Um, so she does end up succumbing to her wounds um, and she's celebrated throughout Rome, through all the Christians in Rome, I should say, um, for her unenduring faith um, and her devotion to her, her Christianity. So that happened third century AD. Fast forward to the time period I study, which is 1600, um, and her body is rediscovered underneath a church. And they create, um, to sort of celebrate this momentous occasion of discovering her body, which was recorded to be discovered completely intact. Um, so it had not decayed. And in fact, when they removed the her from the box, it smelled like roses, which seems miraculous, you could say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some people would say very unlikely, but we're <laughs> sticking with the story, with the history, it says miraculous. So um, yeah, her body's discovered and it's this amazing thing. And so they, the cardinal who's in charge of this church, um, he commissions a sculpture of her. And what makes the sculpture that I'm studying of St. Cecilia so special and so unique is that it's not um, sort of imagining her, you know, in the bath or preaching to everybody or sort of commemorating all these really interesting and enticing things about her biography. It's her lying dead on the ground and you can't even see her face because her head is turned away from the viewer. Like you can tell her neck is broken and you can Mm -hmm. see the incision on her neck um, and a veil is covering her face and she looks so small and sad and lonely. And it's just very, very moving um, and very emotive. And so that is the sculpture I use to sort of kick off the whole dissertation in my first chapter. Um, But just thinking about, okay, well, what is this sculpture doing in the church? Like, 
how does it affect the people who are coming to see it? How does it affect the the physical space that it's in? Um, and what what, what would tell us what were they trying you know, to the say in the sculpture like that you should die a horrible way? Like this is the end is how you're celebrated. Is that kind of the idea behind having that particular part in her life? be what they showcase? Yes and no. I think that for saints like Cecilia, and there are many, many, they're called, you know, called virgin martyr saints. There are so many of them. There's a category for them. <laughs> and they were understood to be inimitable. So you could look to them as sort of an example of what you in a perfect world might do for your faith. But it was understood that they were the exception to the rule and not the rule itself. So I don't think they were ever expecting anyone to actually go to these extreme lengths to defend the Christian faith, but it was seen as a sort of exemplary figure um, or she was seen. And I think in terms of the way the sculpture functioned with this particular one, you have the sculpture of, St. Cecilia, and it's in the church. You can see it as soon as you walk in. Um, you actually one day a year to this day, which is very cool. I hope one day I can go and participate in this on the feast day of St. Cecilia, which is in November, you can touch it. Um, they allow you to come up and you can touch the sculpture and there's accounts of people kissing it and you can have this sort of tactile relationship with it. Mm -hmm. And my argument is that's because her actual body, her relics, which are buried underneath the church, um, they were reinterred after they were discovered, are no longer accessible. So they're in a silver sarcophagus. They're behind this really thick wall. You can see the sarcophagus through like a teeny tiny window um, that's graded, but you can't actually access them as a typical worshiper. Mm -hmm. So what I think the sculpture is doing is it's like literally bringing a representation of her body up from underneath the altar and then put in a space where the public could see it, touch it, interact with it, um, and understand it as a surrogate for her body that is no longer accessible. Hmm. And then um, with, do they, uh, does she have other statues, other places, or is this the only one of her death? There are other statues of her in Rome, um, but not presented the way that this is in death. Okay. Um, it's their more typical of, you know, showing a specific scene from her life um, leading up to her death. Mm -hmm. How is many- The way it was presented, is that what kind of attracted you to use that specific um, sculpture in the way that it was like her death and that's not similar to the way she's presented in other places? Yeah, that's definitely part of it. Um, that's kind of, I was trying to, with my project as a whole, choose work that could be representative of the time period. And so I think this does a nice job. It's 1600 is when it's made um, by a sculptor named Stefano Maderno. And it sort of ushers in what is colloquially known as the Baroque period. So coming after the Renaissance. Um, so I just thought it was a nice introduction to the time period, but it is really different than the other sculptures that I'm talking about in my dissertation and very different from other sculptures in Rome as well. There's really not much like it. There are things that come after it that sort of maybe gesture towards the sculpture. You know, you have a saint underneath um, uh, or part of the altar who is shown in death, but they're also, they kind of more look like they're sleeping. Um, they're, they're like propped up or their eyes are a little open or their, their clothes are kind of billowing all around them. So you get that nice theatricality to it, um, which is really common for this time period. And this sculpture is really unique in that she's just like, there's no, she's dead. Like when you see it, she's like, oh, she's dead. There's no, you can't really spin it any other way. Huh. Yeah, that's crazy. And then oh. you've got, you've just gone around. Um, do you get to travel and see each one that you've written about? Or is a lot of them just uh, pictures or accounts that other people have written? Yes, to all, uh, all of the above. Um, I've seen, I've been lucky in that um, I've been able to see all the sculptures I'm studying in person. Um, and 
I'm sure you both know, like with COVID travel was really hard for a long time. Um, so I was fortunate in that I had gone to Rome before that, um, before COVID hit. So I had seen most of them beforehand. Um, and then last summer I went back to Rome for a couple months of research and I kind of finished tying up those loosens there. Um, but definitely took a lot of pictures myself. I use a lot of other scholars photographs um, and also read so much, <laughs> so much of writing is reading. So yeah, just reading about what everyone else has written about these sculptures. And what uh, Katie, you look like you're just about to say something. I was, but I was also muting myself because the trash truck is going by. At the <laughs> time. Um, I felt like I was interrupting you. Um, for your dis dissertation, um, is it, like how long does it have to be? I, I'm assuming it's similar to a thesis and I had to write a thesis, but um, I'm sure yours is way more involved in the research. And like, t can you talk about the dissertation process? Yeah. So dissertations can look like a lot of different things, at least in art history. Um, mine is four chapters with an introduction and a conclusion. Um, so six parts, I guess. Um, and they can range anywhere from, you know, 100 pages to 400 pages plus, which is really, really long and might definitely won't be that long. Um, but yeah, they, I mean, they take a couple of years to write. Um, with my PhD program, I started in 2017. And the first couple of years, um, you take classes. So you're just a full-time student, you're taking coursework, um, you're learning how to research, you're acquiring the language skills that are needed to do the dissertation research. Um, and then for my university, um, our exams, they give us about a semester to study for them. Um, and then you sit for your qualifying exams, which is a two week long process. And for me, for that two weeks, I wrote 100 pages in two weeks, um, <laughs> which is a lot, but I'm exams are a lot. <laughs> so that's not totally out of um, the ordinary. Um, and then, you know, you hopefully pass your exams uh, and then you start the dissertation. And that is really, uh, for most students, I would say it's pretty self-led. Um, you kind of set your own pace. And of course, COVID for anyone who's in graduate school was really hard to get the research that you needed to get done. So a lot of people are taking maybe longer than they would have um, if not for COVID. Um, but thankfully, like, everyone in my field is very understanding of that. So it's sort of everyone's in the same boat. It's really not that big of a deal in the long run in terms of, you know, being quote unquote behind or um, not getting the type of research done that you normally would. Um, so for me, that meant I didn't get to do as much archival research as I would have wanted to do. Um, I was really only in the archives for like six weeks or so. And typically you would spend up to a year doing onsite research. Um, so that was for me a little disappointing, but I'm still finishing relatively like on track. Um, I've been dissertating for three years now, almost three years. Um, so typically it can take anywhere from like three to five years to write a dissertation. Hmm. And then you do the dissertation, you write it, you submit it to a committee of professors and they read it and then you have to defend your dissertation which i have not done yet um but they as far as i understand it sit you down in a room and test you for orally like a two and a half hour grilling session basically to make sure that you are an expert in your field um and then if you pass that you get a phd <laughs> nice um so with your studies you're just studying women in the Christian faith or Catholicism, uh, yes. correct? Okay. Yeah. So you don't, uh, you haven't been to like other church or like religious places to look at the statues of women there. No, because I don't think it's quite as common and in other religions. I'm thinking of like Abrahamic religions, um, and I and I think even in Christianity, like if you were to visit a Protestant church 
in the same time period, there just are no sculptures of anybody um, because the, at this point in time, the Catholic Church is really doubling down on their program of um, using art in churches to teach because this is something that the Protestant or the Lutheran faction of Christianity at this time is very much against um, because they see it as sort of this um, gateway to idolatry. If you put these sculptures in churches, the next natural step would be to worship it as an idol. And the Catholics are saying, no, that's not true. These are teaching tools. They are there to inspire um, spiritual feelings, but all of those feelings are being directed towards the, towards Christ or to Mary or to God. And um, they're just sort of these representations of people. And we all know that these saints they're representing are not what the people we're actually worshiping or the entities we're worshiping. Um, and so you have in Rome, especially because Rome is, you know, the Catholic capital, um, just an explosion of sculpture and also paintings and just a lot of artworks happening in churches, um, which is why they're so fun to study, at least for me, because there's so much like there's just so much um just concentrated in Rome I know um because I'm familiar with your history that you've been going to Rome for a long time like you would go during the summers to to teach and is that kind of where you got inspired by these sculptures to really decide on what your emphasis was in art history yeah it was I um was really fortunate in high school. Well, um, I got to go on a trip in high school to Rome and a couple of other Italian cities for uh, a school trip. So I was very cool in high school and I was part of the Madrigal Choir. <laughs> and we did like a 10 day tour throughout Italy and staying in different churches and piazze. And it was so much fun, fundraised for like over a year to go on this trip. And um, while I was there, I just fell in love with all of Italy, especially Rome. I also really loved Florence. And I was actually initially attracted to um, the architecture there, because I don't know if you've ever been to like Florence or Rome, but the architecture is huge. Like it's in your face. It's like overwhelming to walk through these streets. And I remember just falling in love with it and thinking, okay, this is what I'm really interested in this. I want to learn more about the architecture. Maybe I want to be an architect. Like I came back really jazzed on this architecture. And then I did some research. I was like, oh, I have to be good at math to do <laughs> architecture. It's not for me. Can't do that. What else can I do that's related to this, but I don't have to do any math. And that's how um, I sort of discovered what art history was and that you could study these sorts of things. Um, and then that's why you know we were reading off my cv which made me sound <laughs> very one one track focus here it's just art history art history art history that's pretty much all I've been doing for my entire adult life <laughs> so you teach now correct um I'm not right now actually right now I am working at the National Gallery of Art in Washington DC um I'm a curatorial intern in the sculpture and decorative arts department but I have taught in the past. I've taught as a teaching assistant um, for the University of Minnesota art history classes outside of my field. Um, I've actually never taught a class in uh, my field at that level, weirdly <laughs> enough. Um, but then I also teach, like Catherine mentioned, um, in Rome, I teach for a high school study abroad program. Um, and that I do teach the Renaissance and Baroque art history. Okay. And then, um... I don't know why Night at the Museum popped in my head with what you said that you work at. It was like the first and only thing I could think about now. It's not a question. It's just a <laughs> So you got to take it away. Um, when you talk about um, researching with the archives, this is a really dumb question. Is that like going to a library and going through what people have already published or is that like going to the churches and studying the artifacts that are there 
that is not a dumb question at all because archival research can be very nebulous. Um, so archival research for me, um, what that looks like is going to um, an institution and that has been libraries in the past. Um, there are also designated archives that are just for holding documents. Um, some churches have their own archives, so archives can kind of live anywhere. Um, but basically, they're just repositories of historical documents. So, for example, last summer I went to Rome, and I went to the Rome State Archives, um, which is inside like this. It's a actually inside a monastery that has been converted into a research center for this archive. Um, so you go in, and you have to make an appointment in advance, and you have to request documents that you want to look at. And so the documents I was looking at were um, ledgers that were written in the 16th and 17th century. So you're looking at documents that are hundreds and hundreds of years old um, that are handwritten in Italian, very messy handwriting, very difficult to read. Um, and you just sit with the documents and you read them. And so um, for me, because I was there for such a short time, I basically was just taking pictures of everything because I didn't have time to like sit in the actual archive and read everything cover to cover because I would have been, I would still be there. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but for some people, this is like all they do and I have so much respect for them because archival research is really hard. You have to know what you're looking for, how to ask for it, um, and how to read it, which sometimes can be really challenging because not only is it in a different language and it's written in really messy handwriting, but um, in 16th century Italy, they use a lot of abbreviations and there's certain types of um, like formats with that are written that unless you know what to look for, it's really easy to miss the type of information that's really important. Um, so yeah, archival research can be really hard. <laughs> <laughs> and you had to learn um, Italian for your um, degree, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's why yeah. I didn't go into our history. I was like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> so are you completely fluent? No, um, I'm fluent enough that I can read and write it pretty easily. Um, I can speak it enough that I can get around the city as like just a person living in the city without any issues. Um, having really in-depth conversations at like a normal, like a native speaker speed is a little challenging for me. I need them to speak very slowly. <laughs> What's another uh, statue that you've been to uh, and saw and then had like a crazy story like you told for the first one? <laughs> um, Or you've only looked at the one. No, <laughs> no, I've looked at it. It's hard for me to choose because I just think, <laughs> I think they're all incredible. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's hard for me to just pick one. Um, so I got to, this is uh, a fun story. So one of the sculptures I'm writing about, it's um, a sculpture of uh, St. Martina. And uh, she, it was, also an early Christian martyr, um, ancient Rome. And she was also beheaded, much like St. Cecilia. If you're sensing a pattern here, that very much exists. You find a lot of young women who were beheaded um, in ancient Rome. And um, what's really cool about her sculpture is that her head is sculpted entirely separately from her body. So when you look at it head on, you can't tell. It just kind of looks like she's lying on her side and maybe she's sleeping. She's got her hands kind of underneath one of her ears and her, her robes are kind of waving around her. So it looks a little bit like she's floating on a wind and her, her mouth is kind of, she's like a little, little grin on her face and her eyes are closed, but she doesn't look dead. She kind of looks like she's having a pleasant little dream. And then if you turn to the side and look at her from the, an angle, you, there's like a, probably like a three or four inch gap between her head and the rest of her body. Um, so they're oh, wow. entirely separated, which is really unique. Like that's not very common. Um, and that's to commemorate that her, the way that she was martyred. Um, 
And what's, what's really interesting about that sculpture right now in our present day is that it's in a church in the Roman Forum that is typically closed to the public. Um, so you can't just walk in like you can in pretty much every other church in Rome. Um, you can just walk in for free and that's, it's really nice and accessible, but this one, you can't do that. Um, so last summer I emailed sort of like the steward of the church, which thank God they have email. <laughs> and explain, yeah. you know, who I was and could you please just let me in to see this sculpture? Because um, at that point, all I had seen was um, pictures of it. And they graciously let me go into the church and they literally locked the door behind me and said, okay, you have an hour, use your time however you see fit. So I had the whole place to myself for an hour or so and oh wow that's cool a couple thousand pictures it was really really cool so so special and it was just a very very unique experience that I'm really grateful for and it's also so nice because it makes now that I'm you know back in the states and I'm not probably ever going to get that opportunity again I now have all this on-site research, AKA photographs and the notes that I took. Um, and I can use that for, you know, my research moving forward um, for however long I need to. In your dissertation, are you just looking at the history of these pieces or are you also incorporating like how people today interact with them or what people today as they go into the, the churches feel and think and see the sculptures? Um, I'm looking at it from a historical point of view, so just how people viewed them in the 17th century, but I will say um, I was in a church a couple of summers ago um, that doesn't have any of the sculptures that I'm studying. It has actually three very famous paintings um, by Caravaggio in one of the chapels. Um, the church is called San Luigi dei Francesi, and most people go into that church to look at these paintings because they're very, very famous. They're very well known. They're huge. They're beautiful. Um, it's totally worth it to go in to see these artworks. But I had gone in, you know, I'd seen those works before and I mostly was just walking through to experience the space. And there was a group of tourists who were looking at these three paintings in the chapel, maybe like 15, 20 people or so. And that's kind of where everyone was gravitating towards. And so as I was walking around the church, I saw out of the corner of my eye, this older Italian woman, probably in her 60s, and she was in the opposite side of the church, and she was going towards a sculpture that was not the most beautiful sculpture, let's say. It was maybe like 20th century, I think probably made of wood. It was painted. It was um, a little garish, let's say. Like, it was a sculpture of the Virgin Mary. It was not what I would have necessarily been drawn to as someone who's visiting this church, but she was really drawn to the sculpture so much so that she, it was kind of um, separated off by a, a, a rope, like it was roped off so people wouldn't accidentally touch it or bump into it. She had crawled underneath the rope and had her hands on the feet of the sculpture and she was, I mean, tears just running down her face, just sobbing and praying and having this really intense spiritual beautiful moment in front of this group of tourists who just could not care less they were all looking at this chapel all these Caravaggio paintings and this woman was having this experience with this sculpture that no one else really cared about um and no one of course none of the sort of the stewards of the church said anything about her touching the sculpture because she wasn't you know being disrespectful of it in a way that a tourist might have been or just a casual visitor like she was having this really meaningful moment I remember watching her and that sort of clicking into place for me how important these sculptures can be to individual people um, and how whether or not we see it every day um, or whether we can even understand it you know I'm not Catholic myself so I would never presume to understand that spiritual connection but to recognize that they're there um, I think it's just so incredible and that is sort of the impetus one of the reasons why I'm, I do the type of research that I do because I think those personal connections are really important um, and they deserve to be recognized and valued um, and it was just a real privilege to see this woman have this connection with this sculpture that meant a lot to her and nothing <laughs> meant nothing else to anyone <laughs> else there. 
That's really interesting. It makes you wonder why she was so attracted to it, but yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Um, Do you ever get frustrated with like, because with the first sculpture you were talking about, um, you were talking about how when it's recorded in history uh, with her body smelling like flowers, is there um, historical records that tell different stories or are they all kind of a similar story with how uh, the religious aspect is um, presented in history? Um, They're all different, which is great because that tells us so much. Um, A lot like today, like you can have one news story and read five different news outlets write about it and they'll each have a slightly different take on it or tell you something completely new and it's really similar um, that hasn't changed and so one of the things um, that I discovered when I was working on the Saint Cecilia sculpture um, it's actually this is like the most exciting thing that I found so I'm so glad I get to share it with you guys (laughs) um, is the all of the accounts not all of them, but most of the main accounts that were published in 1600 to sort of commemorate the discovery of her body, because this was like huge news, a very, very big deal. So all these pamphlets and books were published to commemorate this. And they all, of course, credit the Cardinal, Cardinal Sondrato, um, for discovering her body. Apparently, he is the one who had this drive to find her body. He just knew it was buried underneath the church and he told the workers where to dig and he was there when they dug up the body and he witnessed it with his very own eyes and it was all credited to him so much so that he was called um, basically the Cardinal of St. Cecilia after this. Like he was known definitively for the rest of his life, always connected to this discovery. I was reading through um, this, book of archival documents that have been published by a scholar named Alessandra Lirossi. Thank you so much, Dr. Lirossi, for publishing this. Basically, she went into the archive, found all these documents about the church of um, where this sculpture was found, and just uh, typed up all of the documents in their original language, uh, Italian or Latin, and then published it so that other scholars could use it without having to go into the archives, which is an incredible resource. So I was reading this book and um, the mother superior of the church in 1598, she's basically just writing down like a little day journal of all the happenings that are going on in the the convent. Um, So nothing groundbreaking, just kind of like, oh, this person visited this day and uh, two sisters joined the convent last week, like that sort of thing. And in one of her accounts, she talks about how the cardinal basically like once again he's come to visit he's always coming and he's always asking us where the body of saint cecilia is buried and so today i had our two oldest nuns they came and they told him where to look they told him to go to the specific spot in the church and if you dig you'll find a pillar and if you find this pillar and if you dig in if you open the pillar you'll find a box and inside that box you'll find another box and it kind of sounds like that emperor's new groove like inside that box another box like it's literally how it's written in italian um so they tell him exactly where to dig and he doesn't believe them he's just kind of like thanks but no thanks i think it's somewhere else and so he leaves and the mother you know a couple days later she writes in her diary that he came back and he was digging somewhere else in the church and he he found other things that were interesting but he couldn't find saint cecilia's body and the nuns told him again like you have to dig in this exact spot uh and you'll find her body we know that it's buried there and so he digs there and lo and behold he finds saint cecilia's body and so those two women are not mentioned anywhere else in any other account. They're not given any credit. There's no mention that he's going to the nuns over and over again saying, do you know where her body is buried? Um, he's sort of given all of the credit and these, these women are not. Um, and so I'm really excited to give that credit back to them that they had this embodied knowledge and that this knowledge was coveted by this cardinal um, and he specifically sought them out for it didn't listen the first time second time around listened to them and was able to make this you know miraculous discovery so then 
how did her body end up in the church? Because if she's there in Rome and she's like one of the first Christians and she gets beheaded, how do they get her body and then build a church on top of it? So according to historical sources, which again, whether or not <clears throat> this happened is up for debate, but the way that it is recorded in history as it happened is that when she was killed in ancient Rome, she was buried outside the city as most people, pretty much everyone was, no one was buried inside the city walls. And um, in 820 CE, there's a Pope named Pope Pascal I and St. Cecilia came to him in a dream and said, I need you to go out and dig up my body in point with this specific catacomb basically um and they're all like my husband is buried there and his brother is buried there and all these other important christian martyrs so dig us all up and move us to this church of santa Cecilia which is the church where all this is happening and so he does he goes and he finds her body it's this miraculous thing and he brings her body back but what's interesting is that in the, the account, it's called the Liber Pontificalis. It's this Latin account of the lives of the popes, essentially. And in that account, it says that he, um, her head was, you know, obviously separated from her body because she had been beheaded. So he separated them into two different boxes, two different reliquaries. And one went to the church of Constitutile and Trastevere, her body. And then her head went to another church in Rome. It was sort of gifted to this church, which is a weird gift maybe to get. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's this very precious relic. And um, what's interesting is that if you read the accounts written by um, the, the, the two main accounts are written by these two important men, Antonio Bozio and Cardinal um, Baronio in 1600. And, you know, her body is, whole and it hasn't corrupted and they can see how beautiful her head is underneath her veil and so how does that how does that reconcile you know something is is off there between mm -hmm. these two accounts was her head was she beheaded was her head completely separated was it even there um so there is this question of like what did they actually discover underneath the church and there's one scholar who is convinced that they didn't, there wasn't a body at all, that it was just this heap of rags that they all sort of convinced themselves that it was a body, um, which is entirely possible. And we just won't ever know. But they have, cause you said there's the body that's there, right? That you can kind of see through a hole. Well, you can see the sarcophagus that the body is in. Okay. Yeah. But uh, with testing and everything now, can't they tell if the bo a body is actually in there? Or is it they confirmed that a body is in there? I mean, you could take, you could test. I mean, you could just pop it open and see, but I don't, I don't really see the Catholic church permitting that mm -hmm. um, much like they don't like testing, scientifically testing the, for lack of a better word, accuracy of a relic, like whether it is what it purports to be isn't something that's necessarily important to the Catholic Church because they're questions of faith, right? So whether mm -hmm. you don't necessarily need to test whether this sliver of wood that claims to come from the true cross of Christ is actually a piece of wood that's 2,000 years old because you have faith that it is, and so that is good enough. And so I think that for what I study historically, whether the body was there or not it's interesting like I would like to know just because I'm a curious person but but to the people who are visiting the church as worshipers and you know giving these devotions to Saint Cecilia as a saint it sort of doesn't matter because they believe that it is and they have faith that it is and so we can understand that tells us a lot about society um, and it tells us a lot about religious practices and whether the body was there or not for those purposes at least doesn't really matter hmm, okay I, it makes sense because <laughs> the whole idea is faith-based anyways so mm -hmm. wow that's hard, uh, to wrap your head around it if you're like a researcher and you're like but i want to know if it's yeah um mm -hmm. So I can see how those kind of don't 
always get along the science and the religion part of things yeah <laughs> with um going to rome and seeing like how long were you there to check things out because i know you go a lot but um for the like i guess the newest time that you were there did you were you able to stay a lot longer and like knock out all the statues you wanted to see for your dissertation yeah um last summer i was there i think about two months um and i was really fortunate to have funding for my university to go so um i was able to spend i think i get ended up doing about between like three to five full days devoted to just one sculpture um and then splitting and then also having time set aside to go to the archives and the libraries it's very full schedule which was great i loved it um but it is nice to just sit in a church or wherever you're doing research, if it's in a museum um, or out in a public space to just sit and be with the art and to study it and to study how other people are interacting with it. Um, one of the coolest things that I got to do a couple of summers ago is I was working in a church, doing research in a church, and I had gone, you know, during the day um, to study these sculptures, but they had a concert one evening in the church. And so I got to go in the evening and listen to the acoustics and think about how worship services might have been held in that church and what they would have sounded like. Um, so it's really nice to just be in the space um, and experience art in person, which I think is pretty similar. Uh, to any art, it's, it's always nice to experience it in person. Um, Catherine, I'm sure you would agree, <laughs> especially for things like like art that has an auditory component or like performance art or things like that. Mm -hmm. How important is the artist who sculpted the pieces to you? Or is it just purely about the sculpture and the history or does the artist who was chosen to do the piece, does that have anything to do with your research? Yeah, it does. Um, I think that the artist is always really important, um, regardless of the artwork. With this time period that I study, what an artist is, is a little different than what an artist, like a contemporary artist of today would be considered as, and how they do their art, and even what is considered art, is different. Um, so the sculptures that I study, they work in workshops. So very rarely do you have a sculptor create a sculpture from start to finish just by his hand. Um, there's always going to be a workshop component. And this is different based on like how successful a sculptor is whether they're, they lead their own workshop or they work in someone else's, whether that workshop is really small or really, really big. Um, so one of the sculptors that I study, John Lorenzo Bernini, he's like the biggest sculptor of the 17th century. Um, he's responsible for a lot of what you see of today in Rome. Um, that's not ancient. If you're like, that looks vaguely Baroque, it's probably Bernini. <laughs> um, <laughs> you can see him all over the city uh, for architecture and for sculpture as well. And so he had a huge workshop. Pretty much every sculptor in Rome worked for or with Bernini at one point or another. Um, so any sculpture you're studying by him, yes, they're by him, but there's also a lot of other people who are working on it. Um, sculpture was also seen as like, kind of this, it, it was lesser than painting. It wasn't as well respected um, because for a number of reasons, my favorite one is that um, sculptures had like, or sculptors had really buff arms that were seen as like unattractive because you could tell they worked with their hands like, and you know, actually to work the marble. Um, whereas painters could, you know, keep themselves clean with a smock and they just kind of spent all their time inside. So um, there's also that factor as well. I'm thinking about, well, what, what is a sculptor in this time period and how are they considered by their peers? Um, but yeah, the sculptor, for example, for Santa Cecilia, uh, his name, as I mentioned, was Stefano Maderno. He was quite young when he made the sculpture. He was about 25 years old. And it was the best thing he ever did. He peaked at 25. <laughs> like, <laughs> everyone agrees. His contemporaries agreed. It's actually a little depressing to read like 
his biographies of him that are written right after his death because they're basically just like eh, it was the best he did and then everything else he did after that was very mediocre <laughs> oh, no. so, and he even lamented at the end of his life like that he didn't do anything just as good as that one so it's um yeah sometimes it can be more helpful to know about the biography of the artist it can give you a lot of really interesting insights and then other times it's not as useful um, because so much of it comes from, for example, the patron telling the artist what to make. And maybe the artist didn't have as much creative control over the artwork as you would think. So it kind of, it varies, but I definitely am interested in the artist. Um, I think they're really important. And I think for sculpture, especially, um, it's important to think about how they're working within this workshop structure. That's fascinating. Um, we're pretty much at time. We, I feel bad because we've just been shooting off questions. Uh, for <laughs> so you're probably like, okay, I'm done now. <laughs> but super interesting. Thank you so much for being on our podcast. Um, I don't know if you want to plug yourself at all. Like we usually, if you have a website or Instagram, but I don't know if you want people to find you so yeah I don't really have any public facing social media but I will say um my one little plug I guess uh if anyone who's listening to this has a um high school aged sibling or cousin or friend of a friend or anyone you know who is interested in Rome or art history and it also it's whether it's Renaissance and Baroque or ancient Rome um I direct you to Brown University's experiential education program, which is the Rome program that I work for. Um, we teach a two week long um, study abroad program for rising juniors and seniors in high school. And it's the best thing I do every summer. I've been doing it for almost 10 years now and it's so much fun. Um, I think the students have a really great time. It's focused mainly on history, but you see so much of Rome. We go on really fun weekend trips um and it's a really great experience there are scholarships available um so I encourage you to tell the people you know who would um fit that bill to apply because it's really fun that's cool Makes that's a good plug go back yeah. to school. <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much Ashley for being on um Samuel, do you have any plugs? That you I have, have no plugs All either. I am glad I got the memo to wear burgundy. Though. Yeah, we're oh. matching. <laughs> so you are the last podcast, you and the guests are matching, Katie. Uh, yeah. So I decided, you know, you had to match with, one of us has to always match with the guest. <laughs> I like it, especially because it's uh, not a visual. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> it's all audible. Um but thank you. Uh, as always, you can find us at missartworld.com. Um, anywhere you listen to your podcasts, uh, just search Miss Art World um, podcast. And then we're also on Instagram too. So thank you always for listening. And until next time. Bye, guys. Bye, Art World. <laughs>